The file you are about to hear has been thoroughly scrutinized by the Ethics Committee and approved by the O5 Council for release to trusted associates of the Foundation. This is SCP Unredacted. Item number SCP-6462 Level 5, Top Secret Containment Class, Keter Disruption Class, Amida Risk Class, Critical Special Containment Procedures SCP-6462 is to be monitored for any sign of dimensional intrusion. In the event of unauthorized entry into the anomaly, Stationary Task Force Aleph 5 Ridezillas is to immediately terminate all trespassing entities. In the event that an authorized entry into the anomaly results in personnel being deposited in any area outside of 6462B1, an Aleph 5 team is to be dispatched to retrieve them. Personnel stationed within the anomaly are to undergo weekly psychiatric evaluations. Personnel that begin displaying erratic behavior, an obsession with the number 7, and or acute claustrophobia are to be amnesticized and removed from their position. Additionally, assigned personnel are to undergo regular anaerobic exercises and observe a high-protein diet to prevent muscle atrophy. To prevent transmission of Dash A, Type 21 Bulwark Energy Disruptors have been arranged in a 7-meter radius around Dash C. They are to be safely deactivated and replaced every 23.4 hours to be disassembled and cleaned of any accumulated blood, amniotic fluid, and or associated viscera. 310 liters of water are to be placed within 5.4 meters of Dash C every 6.1 hours. Dash C's chains are to be visually examined every 12 hours for damage. If the chains are rendered unable to keep Dash C closed, or C1 is verifiably observed to physically exit Dash C through any other means, an on-site Surter-class warhead is to be remotely detonated. Description SCP-6462 is a pocket reality, located within Relic Universe 7V Omega, which was previously believed to have been rendered unable to sustain reality during the Third Crimson Crusade. The anomaly's position within Relic Universe 7V Omega appears to have hidden its existence from the multiverse at large as all available multiverse maps display 7V Omega as an empty dead zone. The only way to independently learn of the anomaly's existence is to isolate Dash A, trace it to its point of origin, then utilize a Scranton Meyerbeer arc to travel to that origin point. Addendum 6462.1 SCP-6462 SCP-6462-A is an anomalous form of Leinster Wells radiation that was discovered 
through the Trifrost Initiative. Dashay's anomalous properties were brought to light by the standard exposure tests that were performed following its discovery. SCP-6462-A Exposure Test Log Subjects were exposed to a concentrated Dash A emission, then closely monitored for physical or psychological changes. Tests 1 to 45, removed for brevity. Test 46. Subject, three live chickens. Result, necropsies revealed that the stomach lining of two of the subjects became lined with teeth-like growths. The third subject's stomach appeared unaltered, but further examination revealed that it was entirely composed of human ovarian tissue. The subject's stomach tissue was discovered to be genetically identical to ovarian tissue samples taken from SCP-231-5. Tests 47 to 56, removed for brevity. Test 57. Subject, 15 D-Class personnel. Result, the subjects reported regularly experiencing strange and upsetting dreams over the course of the month following their exposure to the anomaly. A majority of reports display imagery and themes commonly found in the religious texts of the children of the Scarlet King. Test 57. Dream Report Sample Subject D-6751 Date 15 June 2034 I was in this cave, but it was also a river, like it used to be a river, or was going to be, don't remember. It was completely dark, I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. I had a rope tied around my waist and I was holding on to it because I knew it led back to the surface. I was barefoot, I think. It was all quiet just dripping water. Sometimes I heard someone else breathing, all hot on the back of my neck. Felt I was getting bitten without breath. Whenever that happened, I'd freak out and start running, but I'd forget about the rope and take a wrong turn and I'd have to turn back. Eventually, I found the surface, but then I looked down and realized it hadn't been rope I was holding on to the whole time. It was my fucking intestines, with one end coming out of a nasty hole in my stomach and the other end tied to a tree at the mouth of the cave. Really waked me out, I'll tell you. Woke up half the cell block with my screaming. But you probably already knew about that part, right? Subject, D-2183. Date, 10 July. 2034. I was going to a party with my sisters. I had sisters in the dream, but we were all really sad about it. We never got to the party, though. It was like we were always on the verge of arriving. Can you provide more detail regarding the sisters you were dreaming about? Did they have any notable physical features or clothing? Any memorable personality traits? I don't know. I never remember much about my dreams. 
I think all seven of us were wearing these long gowns and um, heavy metal bracelets on both wrists. Oh yeah, I, I had like six or seven sisters in the dream. Is that enough detail? Subject, D-4644. Date, 15 June, 2034. I was in some kind of ceremony. A ritual, like something from a bad horror movie. Chanting, guys in robes, the whole nine yards. There was a girl in a white gown chained to a stone slab. Couldn't have been more than 15. Not much older than my daughter. I expected her to look terrified, but she was sort of resigned. Tired, almost. They gave me a dagger to cut her open. But before they could make me, I woke up because some asshole thought it would be funny to start yelling shit at 3 a.m. I guess I'm grateful for that, but they... The subject interrupts himself, appearing conflicted. Please, continue. They... They wouldn't have needed to make me do it. I, I wanted to do it. To cut her open. I... I still do. Fuck! I still do. She looked so much like a little girl. I... The subject rubs his face with his hands. I think there's something really wrong with me, Doctor. Class C amnestics were administered to the subject shortly after the interview's conclusion. Subject, D-7061. Date, 2 July, 2034. Red. When requested to clarify their statement, the subject attempted to comply, but was unable to describe their dream in any other words. Subject, D-3082. Date, 9 July, 2034. I don't remember my dad's face. Did you know that? He died in a car crash when I was nine. He taught me how to read, how to ride a bike, and I don't remember his face. Can you imagine? I don't understand. Are you saying your dream was of childhood memories? Did you see your father's face in your dream? He came into my room last night with the red of the howling moon's eye. But his face was wrong. He wasn't wearing it right. The subject begins bleeding from her left nostril. Oh, here he comes now. The subject became unresponsive to questioning. It quickly became apparent that she was suffering from a severe heart attack, likely caused by preeclampsia-induced high blood pressure. The subject is currently in recovery. The anomaly does not experience a day-night cycle. It appears to possess a celestial body analogous to the sun, which perpetually produces 2,000 to 5,000 lux. The anomaly lacks any form of native non-bacterial organic life. Muscle mass atrophies at an increased rate within the anomaly, though not at a pace that cannot be counteracted with exercise and a high-protein diet. With the exception of Dash B, its landscape is predominantly flat and featureless, dotted with stone outcroppings. 
The surface area of the anomaly is currently unknown. Dash B is an approximately 2,500 square kilometer city situated within the anomaly. The structures within Dash B bear strong stylistic similarities to pre-Renaissance Davide architecture, though no physical evidence of human habitation within Dash B has been found. With the exception of B1, all structures within Dash B are hollow and deceptively fragile. Nearly all instances of text within Dash B have eroded to the point of illegibility. Dash B is inhabited by an unknown quantity of BNT instances. An instance is a humanoid entity composed of dense tenebrous matter. NT instances temporarily cease existing while being directly perceived. All sightings of NT instances have been in the periphery of the viewer's vision or heard in such a way that the listener was uncertain of the sound's source. Any camera within a 52-meter radius of an NT instance may begin displaying one or more instances that are not there. Up to 44% of all recorded images of NT instances are potentially false. Instances are aggressive and violent, but not directly confrontational, usually choosing targets that are alone or, if no such prey is available, attacking through ambushes. NT instances are either unable or unwilling to harm or impede Foundation personnel within B-1. As such, the Central Hall, designated B-1-0, has been made the location of the Central Base Camp within the anomaly. Addendum 6462.2 Supplementary Exploration Log before the discovery of B-1's pacifying effect on NT instances, Mobile Task Force Aleph-7, Crownbreakers, attempted to create a safe zone where Foundation researchers could work with relative safety. During these proceedings, Aleph-7 member Gabriel Dubois was separated from his team in an altercation that destroyed his portable radio and damaged the broadcaster on his body cam. 45 minutes later, his body cam continued broadcasting. Video log transcript. Begin log. Dubois' body cam is pointed at the floor, presumably because he is in the midst of repairing it. Come on, you piece of... Yes! Dubois sets his body cam back into place. It faces a closed door, which has been barricaded with multiple pieces of furniture. Okay, I can't hear you, but you can hear me. I was separated from my team and got chased into a building a couple blocks down. Not certain where. I wasn't able to keep my sense of direction. I think I'm in some kind of hospital. Third floor. I've barricaded the door. It's managed to hold so far. No idea how. This furniture is brittle as hell. Chair leg broke off in my hand. I only did it because I thought it would slow them down as I climbed out the window. No such luck. Uh, room doesn't have a window. I think those shadow things are just waiting outside the door. 
I can hear them whispering. Dubois nears the barricaded door. Indistinct voices can be heard. It is unclear how many sources are present. I think they're telling me to open the door over and over again. Just open the door. Why don't they do it themselves? I've seen one pull a man's arms off like a kid with a Barbie. You're thinking of the wrong door. Dubois screams and turns. The broadcast ends. End log. Gabriel Dubois's body has not yet been recovered. SCP-6462-B1 is a palace in the approximate center of Dash B. It appears to host multiple spatial anomalies, as moving through a doorway in B1 transports the subject into a random room within. The seventh doorway one travels to will always return the subject to the central hall. The only thresholds not subject to this anomaly are the doorways at both ends of the central hall, the building's single entrance and exit, and the door to the throne room. Addendum 6462.3 Palace Rooms Currently, 306 distinct rooms have been discovered within B1. Rooms of particular significance have been catalogued as follows. The central hall possesses 10 thresholds in total, one on each end and four on both sides. The second threshold on the south wall has collapsed, making passage impossible. The throne room contains SCP-6462-C. The conservatory contains several forms of dead plant matter, including gold leaves of similar hue and shape to that of the Ithium cultivar of Malus domestica. The Armory Due to the extreme danger that C1 poses to reality as a whole, 45% of the objects discovered in the armory have been utilized to construct the on-site suitor-class warhead. 47% of the room's contents have been transferred to hazardous materials storage site J, pending examination and classification. The remaining 8% have not been moved, as attempting to do so has been deemed too dangerous. The Library all texts in this room have been rendered unsalvageable due to a mixture of erosion and burn marks. Edit. Four legible texts have been uncovered. The first partially resembles existing descriptions of the anomaly. The remaining three texts are currently being translated. The Bloodletting Room. Upon entering this room, all adjacent thresholds automatically seal themselves and can only be reopened by filling the stone bowl in the center of the room with two liters of intravenous blood. The Empty Chamber The floor of this room is covered in an unknown tar-like substance. Loud knocking can be heard through its northeast wall. The Birthing Room Cognitohazard expunged. The Ocean Chamber this room contains a body of water of unknown size that vastly exceeds the surface area of Dash B. 
cursory explorations of this room have uncovered the fossilized remains of an unknown mammalian species that bears extreme resemblance to the species Physeter macrocephalus. Dash C is a stone casket that is approximately 3 meters wide, 5 meters long, and 2 meters deep. It is suspended in the air above a stone throne in the center of the throne room, wrapped in seven chains composed of an unknown silver metal. Each chain is attached to a metal loop that has been embedded in either the north or south wall. Four chains are connected to the north wall and three are connected to the south. A fourth loop has been observed on the south wall adjacent to the other three loops, but no evidence of an eighth chain has yet been found. The casket has an exiccating effect on all forms of liquid and organic matter within a 5.4 meter to 2.2 kilometer radius. The rate of exiccation and size of its range of effect is inversely proportional to the amount of liquid removed by the casket within a recent time span. Entrance into the palace was not initially possible until three members of MTF Aleph 7 accidentally entered the casket's range of effect, subsequently losing all moisture in their bodies within 2.9 seconds. There is a symbol crudely etched into the lid of the casket, partially obscured by its chains. It appears to be the Davite glyph Ner, which can be translated to mean lack, thirst, hunger, longing, or emptiness. SCP-6462-C1 is believed to be contained within the casket. It is not to be interacted with under any circumstances. Addendum 6462.4 Interview Proposal 2. The O5 Council From 0511 at foundation.scp Subject SCP-6462-C1 Interview Proposal I propose we lift the ban on communication with C1. Yes, there is certainly a risk to communicating with her even while contained. In fact, I won't insult you by mincing words. The risk is tremendous. One needs to only look to the list of anomalies confirmed to be the children of the Seven Brides to understand the danger she poses. Just one of their kids is likely to destroy the world in a few years. In other words, this is no run-of-the-mill apocalypse god. This is a being that creates harbingers of doomsday and droves. The amount of death that this thing has caused is truly unfathomable. Be that as it may, the information we could gain regarding the Scarlet King from her could be invaluable. Keep in mind the threat this entity continues to pose to all of reality. I'm sure you've all seen the latest reports on what he's done to the latest batch of universes to open the way to his armies. This is a unique opportunity to take a step toward ending his reign. We can't afford to be overly squeamish about our own safety. Even if the worst comes to pass, and she breaks her chains, remember this. This world will die in the dark so that all worlds may live in the light. After a council vote of six yay, five nay, and two abstain, the proposal status is approved. Addendum 6462.5 
Interview 1 Interviewed SCP-6462 C1 Interviewer Dr. Anvi Madras Begin log Hello My name is Anvi Madras Can you understand me? C1 attempts to speak multiple times, wheezing and coughing quietly with each attempt. Yes, apologies. It has been some time since I last had reason to speak. I am Anut. Would you be willing to answer some questions for me, Anut? Questions? You have questions here. Are you by any chance a scholar? Of a sort. I'm a researcher. Wonderful. It has been so long since I've spoken to one of like mind. Ask your question, scholar, and I will answer to the best of my knowledge. Though I must warn you that my mind has grown sluggish with its lack of proper use. It shall take some time before the webbing has cleared my thoughts. We'll start with something easy then. Do you know where you are right now? I believe I was entombed in the throne room of my firstborn son. Little joke by my husband, I think. He was so abominably loyal. Despite my greatest efforts, the idiot probably got himself killed in my name while I was sealed away. Who is your husband? Why do you ask questions you already know the answer to? I... Do not ask me of Karak. Not yet. Just thinking of him makes my scars ache. Very well. Can you tell me more about this place? This was the first nursery world I ever built. What is a nursery world? I have many children. They need a place to learn and grow. I apologize if they've given you any trouble on your way. Their will is not their own. Those shadows are your children? In a certain sense, yes. When I first guided them along the hidden paths of magic, my husband grew paranoid. He broke their bodies upon the rocks of the shore, and when that was done, to ensure that they would never heal correctly, he stole their shadows. It is fitting that he would choose shadows to be my jailers. This entire world has become a pale reflection of itself. A figment. I wonder what it looks like now. It was still so alive when he sealed me away. If it was alive before you were sealed, how do you know it is dead? My cage may have left me sightless, but I am not entirely without sense. When this place was alive, the wind would skim along the curves and bridges of the spawning fields and make such beautiful music. 
It was as though the sky was singing. Now, there is only the silence of a mausoleum, of a world scoured. There is not but dust. Not even blood remains. I have grown weary. Speech after an age of silence is more tiresome than I expected. We will continue this later. End log. Addendum 6462.6 Interview 2 Interviewed SCP-6462-C1 Interviewer Dr. Anvi Madras Begin log. How are you feeling today? Much better, thank you. Would you be amenable to answering more questions? I would be entirely amenable, though I have a feeling you have a singular question in mind today. You wish to learn more of my husband, yes? I believe I am prepared to speak on the subject. Yes. Can you describe the true nature of the entity known as the Scarlet King? C1 is silent for 41 seconds. Karak is... He is fundamentally a frightened, angry child. Born into a world that brings him unending pain, he lashes out rather than adapt to his surroundings or change them to his liking. He seeks to tear it all down, like a child. He is blind to the contradiction of his desires. He wishes to destroy all things to experience the peace of non-being and is terrified of death. He is immortal, you know, in every way. He has taught himself the syllables of royalty, partaken from fountains and orchards of eternal life, erased his name from the tablets of death, melted down the wings of archangels into golden nails and pounded them into his flesh. He's just delaying the inevitable, of course. Everything else. I liken his schemes to that of a child's favorite doll, clutched close in the belief that it will keep the nightmares away. That is what Karak is. That is illuminating, but not what I meant. I'd like to know more about what the Scarlet King is, not who. What do you think the Shamashadal is? You're avoiding the question. Humor me, scholar. When speaking in abstraction, it's useful to have a starting point that the other will understand. The leading theory is that the Scarlet King is the embodiment of the struggle between the modern and pre-modern. The howl of the old straining against the new. I would assume that your theory speaks of your people's role in this. Your grey modernity choking the world until it bleeds scarlet? Yes. That is a rather self-centered way of seeing things, wouldn't you say? 
The Shawmaster Gold is a fire that sweeps across every reality, every world. He does not gaze into your species alone. Why would you claim so credit for his apotheosis? So, we're wrong then? Oh no, your theory is entirely on the mark. <laughs> you merely have it inside out. Pardon? You consider this war of the ancient and contemporary to be a grand flame that casts the shadow that is Karak onto the walls of the cave. And yet, you are absolutely certain which is which. Are you certain that it is not Karak that is the fire and the war that is the shadow? Are you telling me that the concepts of modernity and pre-modernity are extensions of the Scarlet King? I merely give you a thought exercise. Whatever conclusions you take from it are your own. Believe me now, my scars ache once more and this old woman needs her rest. End log. Addendum 6462.7 Interview 3 Interviewed SCP-6462-C1 Interviewer, Dr. Anvi Madras. Begin log. I'd like to ask you about the Scarlet King's immortality. Can you list the methods he used to obtain it? Straight into the point, aren't we? Good. As I said before, his immortality is a fool's errand. A delaying tactic, nothing more. To make oneself truly deathless is an impossible task. Even so, I'd like to know how the Scarlet King has attempted it. That reminds me of a story my mother once told me. A tale of a girl who attempted a likewise impossible task. Would you like to hear it? Yes. Once a very long time ago, there was a girl made of glass who lived in a little house by the river. The girl was a fragile thing. A hard wind could cut her skin. A simple flick could shatter bone. A harsh word could leave bruises that ached for weeks. Often bedridden by injury or illness, the girl found herself with all the time in the world to read. And read she did. The girl read anything she could get her hands on. No matter the subject, she would descend upon the pages like a wolf on a sun-baked carcass, ravenously devouring every morsel of knowledge until there was none but bones. She was insatiable. She read and read and read, and when she had finished reading, she went back and read some more. Soon, the girl had mastered nearly every subject, every field of study, she could calculate the mathematics of the stars in her head. She mapped the hidden paths of magic on the insides of dust covers. She knew the name of every animal and all the secret words of creation. Yet for all of her learning, one thing continued to lay beyond her reach. The great ash tree on the other side of the river. She knew only two things of the tree. Firstly, 
It was a thing of some renown. Rumor said that its roots stretched far beyond its gated garden to every continent and kingdom. From the fragrant shores of the city of hedonist dreams to the circuitous trails of the name eater's grove to even the blank vistas of the angled colonies. People would travel for miles just to sit beneath its wide branches. The second thing she knew was that her father hated the tree with a passion. It represented everything that he was not, everything that he stood against, and he despised the tree for that. In the rare moments that he slept, he dreamed only of fire engulfing the tree, of tearing each root from the earth until only its memory remained. Each morning, the girl's father set out to make his dream a reality, and each morning he failed. The currents of the river were too strong, threatening to topple the most sturdy of boats. Beyond the river was a set of iron gates that were veined with thorns and poison ivy to prevent trespassers from scaling them. Beyond the gates was a beautiful garden that dazzled and befuddled the mind with its beauty, which was tended to by dozens of devoted gardeners and caregivers, each being willing to give their lives in defense of their home. The girl's father was a man of incredible strength and skill, but not even he could pass these trials. One day, when her father was tending to other business and her sisters were playing in the field beyond her home, the girl set to traveling to the ash tree by herself. Blinded by the overconfidence of youth, she believed that these impossible hurdles could be surpassed with the correct applying knowledge. Surely her comprehension of boat building and seafaring was enough to ford the river. Surely her familiarity with plant life was enough to circumvent the thorns and ivy of the gate. Surely she was intelligent enough to not be dazzled by the garden and articulate enough to convince its guardians to allow her passage. Surely Ignorant in her genius, the girl left her home to cross the river in a raft of her own design. And that is when something truly miraculous happened. Her plan worked. The river's currents, being strangely tranquil that day, allowed her to cross the river in peace. When she reached the gates, they opened at her first touch. The garden was surprisingly easy to navigate. Its caretakers nodded at her cheerfully as she passed, making no move to impede her. In a matter of moments, the girl accomplished what her father had sought for years. She had reached the great ash tree. The ash tree was far more beautiful than her books had promised. Sunlight streamed through its vivid leaves, diffusing warmth into its shadows. Innumerable baubles hung from the tree's limbs, clinking merrily in the quiet breeze. The air was smooth and sweet. A garden snake crawled out from 
Mama's home in the roots of the ash tree. Looking up at her, it began to speak. Welcome to my tree, said the snake. This tree is yours, queried the girl, confused. How can a snake own a tree? I was here first, hissed the snake. I knew this tree before the first men walked on two legs. That doesn't make sense, retorted the girl, who cared a great deal about what did and did not square with her perception of reality. There is no reptile in the world that could live that long, not even the most resilient of tortoises. It doesn't make sense, does it? Agreed the snake. You must be a clever one. I'm the cleverest, prayed the girl, puffing up her chest. All my sisters say so. You must be to have made it all the way here, said the snake. Not many do. Not many even think to look for a way. Few understand that the first step of the journey will take you most of the way there. Would you like to live in my tree, child? The girl could only laugh. So taken aback was she by the audacity of the snake's offer. Foolish snake, she chided. What could a tree full of insects and rodents and who knows what else have to offer me? Knowledge, said the snake. The insects and rodents in my tree are a part of this world, not mere observers. She has taught them all her secrets. They could do the same for you who shares their unending hunger. Here, you could spend your days doing whatever you loved most. Here, you could be loved without reservation or condition. Here, if you wish it, you will never be touched by a man ever again. A profound ache opened in the girl's chest. Being accustomed to sudden, unexplained pain, she ignored it. Snake, snapped the girl. I belong to my house. I belong to my father. I have no choice in this matter. I came here to help him burn this place to the ground. Oh, child, whispered the snake. There is always a choice. The ache in her doubled in size, then redoubled. It was an emotion she didn't know how to describe. She could not see the shape of it. She did not know the name of the animal in her chest. She shook her head, words abandoning her. To choose between an uncertain happiness and a certain agony was not a choice at all. So accustomed was she to this life that she hated. That joy seemed to be an even greater terror. She could not even visualize it. The girl turned and fled. She ran away from the great ash tree, through the garden past the gates, and onto her raft. It wasn't until she had reached the other shore that she ever 
looked back. Is this story true? Did it really happen? Of course it did. Did your mother never tell you that all stories are true? Claiming exhaustion, C1 refused to answer further questions. End log. Addendum 6462.8. Interview 4. Interviewed SCP 6462 C1. Interviewer Dr. Anvi Madras. Begin log. I don't suppose you have more questions of my husband. I begin to grow weary of the subject. I'd like to ask about your sisters, actually. What can you tell me about them? My sisters are. There was always supposed to be seven of us. Seven is a number of power, after all, of magic. A portentous symbol. Even in the days when the world was still young, that was known to many. Personally, I prefer to use the rule of threes in my spellcraft. More flexible. But that's not to say I've chosen the path of the three in one. The Mother Maiden Chrome is nothing but a shortcut, an illusion of power. Not just heavy hacks, though a lot of them. Of course, magic in fives has also been an option for me, being the fifth daughter, the fifth bride. But I've never been the religious sort. <laughs> you said that there was a purpose for the number of your sisters. Were you born to fulfill a particular goal? Yes, Garak is the Great Destroyer, the beast waiting at the gates, the inevitable end of all things. He can only destroy and take. He cannot create. That is why he needed Sama, my mother. That is why he needed his seven brides. Does he not need you anymore? For the longest time, I looked down on my youngest sister. She was always the weakest of all of us, soft-hearted and weak-willed. But now, I think she did surpass us in one respect. She had the most courage. Why do you say that? She was the only one who ever tried to leave. I think I'm done speaking now. End log. Addendum 6462.9. Interview 5. Interviewed SCP 6462 C1. Interviewer Dr. Anvi Madras. Begin log. I apologize for ending our previous meeting so abruptly. My imprisonment has left my social skills in rather poor condition. Perhaps you can make it up to me by answering some questions. <laughs> you are an audacious one. Go on then, Scholar. How does the Scarlet King spread his influence to different universes? That is a question with two answers. 
I'd like to hear both. I'd expect nothing less. The first is this. The Scarlet King's greatest weapon, I believe, is very me. He's like water, you see. He spreads to fill any open space, pours himself into containers to take their shape. He flows into the hollow spaces of false histories to make them his. He draws the wills of the like-minded into the tides of his thoughts, pushes them to open doorways, pulls them to spread word of his coming through art and song. He does not create, he takes. He subsumes. He is an unyielding torrent that no dam can contain. That is the first answer. The second answer is a story. There once was a brass princess who lived in a great and terrible kingdom by the sea. The brass princess was not a thing of flesh, but of metal. You see, the king of this terrible kingdom was full of rage and hate, forever warring against all of creation. No woman was willing to marry him, not even when threatened with torture or death. Thus he ordered the greatest engineer in all the land to build him seven wives that would stand by his side eternally. The first bride was made of gold. The second bride was made of silver. The third bride was made of bronze. The fourth bride was made of iron. The fifth bride was made of brass. The sixth bride was made of steel. And the seventh, smallest bride was cobbled together with the scraps of metal left behind by the first six brides. One day, on the anniversary of the king's birth, he was visited by a man who did not have a name. The man was pale, tall, and thin. He was knowledgeable in the esoteric arts and was subject to no law but his own. All things that could harbor fear in their hearts held it for him alone. The king was no different. Their meeting was short-lived, a simple exchange of threats and glares across the marble halls. Nothing more. Nothing more was necessary for the pale man's purposes. It was not the first time the nameless man had made such a social call, nor would it be the last. But this time was different. After their encounter had run its course, the king found that fear still lurked in his heart, a paranoia that froze his gut and boiled his mind. Seeing the storm brewing beneath his brow, the gold bride, who had earned the title of queen through masterful performances of loyalty, came to him, her face a perfect mask of concern. What troubles you, husband of mine? asked the queen. What could bring such discontent on the celebration of your birth? I am concerned, said the king, who was too proud to admit fear of anything. There are dangers abroad in the world, 
Things that, despite my greatest efforts, could bring me harm. Surely not, exclaimed the queen. You are wise and powerful beyond compare, are you not? Are not you the master of every land across this world, free to destroy whatever you wish? This is true, begrudged the king. And you have your wives, my king. In whatever danger you may come to face, you shall not do it alone. Are we not the greatest weapons in your arsenal, your brides of metal? Yes, he said. He has suddenly become very still. You are. The queen had not trained in the art of prophecy. She wasn't an oracle. She did not search for omens and gleaming intestines or clattering bones. In fact, she detested the idea that the path of her future could be directed by any hand that was not her own. But in that moment, looking into her husband's burning eyes, she saw a vision of her own death. Later that night in secret, the queen called the other brides to her quarters to speak of what she saw. I fear the worst, said the queen, her delicate hands clasped together. I believe he has grown affrighted of our strength, believing that we may one day turn that strength against him. He would sooner end us than risk his own ending. You truly are a coward, sneered the bronze bride. Should we really be panicking over a simple vision? We should, whispered the steel bride from behind a chair in the corner of the room. I saw him as I traveled here in shadow. He stands in his great forge, where he has begun taking up his armies of war. As we speak, he dons the rusted armor he wore when he killed our creator mother. For a moment, the other brides were stunned into silence, half due to the steel bride's news, half because she had spoken at all. Then we kill him, yes? Spoke up the iron bride, rash as ever. We take up our own weapons and armor, and we kill him so hard that our people will not be able to conceive how dead he is. No! said the silver bride. That would perhaps have been possible in the past, were we all working in concert, but not now. Not when he has enshrined himself in fear and violence. He makes himself into a storm. He makes himself untouchable. Our only recourse is to flee. That is no recourse, said the queen. He would set our people upon us and hunt us to the furthest star if he needed to. Listen close, sisters, said the brass bride, a clever glint in her eyes. I have a plan. This should be good, snorted the bronze bride. Hush, said the queen. Our sister is wise in the ways of magic and many other things besides. We should hear her out. To survive, there is only one thing we can do said the brass bride. We must convince him to spare our lives. You see, I have a proposal for him. Instead of slaying us, 
He will instead seal each of us away in a prison of his own design. In sealing his seven brides away, he shall seal himself away as well. That is the way of things. You've gone rusted, haven't you? cried the silver bride, beside herself with fear. There's a dent in your head, isn't there? Your gears must be crooked. Why would he ever agree to that? The answer is simple, said the brass bride. In sealing himself away, he creates a lock that separates him from all worlds. The presence of a lock implies the presence of a door that keeps it shut. Implies a key that may open it. Magic, you see, is a thing of symbols and implication. Something implied or symbolized is something that can be made real. He creates a lock, a set of chains, a closed door that shuts him off from all worlds. And the thing about closed doors is they open both ways. A door that cuts off all worlds is a door that may open to any all he needs is someone to make a key to use symbols of the seven sealed brides to open the way. Surely you jest, growled the scrap metal bride, who had not spoken since the meeting began. Surely this is a corroded joke at our expense. Surely you would not aid our husband in his war against creation just to prolong our lives. Surely you would not be so monstrous. Monstrous, perhaps, replied the brass bride, but also necessary. This paranoia was not entirely unfounded. We are, perhaps, one of the only things in this world that one day may kill him. To preserve all things, we must first preserve ourselves. As the rest of her sisters murmured their agreement, the scrap metal bride could only blink back angry, oily tears. Do what you will, she muttered. Just know that I can see through your lies, sister, even if you cannot. The king sent each of his brides to a prison of his own design. The gold bride was trapped in a birdcage and brought to one of the king's greatest allies as a gift. The silver bride was cast into a shattered ocean. The bronze bride was sold to the denizens of the deepest hell. The iron bride was entombed in the heart of a hateful star, which fed on her pain to only grow brighter. The steel bride was sent to a place that had no name. The scrap metal bride, who had never been loyal to the king, was imprisoned in the king's palace, where he could keep an eye on her personally. Finally, the brass bride was brought to a hidden junkyard, where knowledge held no meaning, made hollow by the wind. The king knew that his wife was clever, knew that her finely tuned mind could unravel any trap he placed in her, rebuild any piece of her he broke. 
was her mind he chose to break. He reached into her head and ground her clockwork thoughts into a fine powder. With this final act of cruelty, the princess was brought low and dispersed as a mist into the dark. Why do you answer some questions with direct answers, and others with lengthy stories? Perhaps it is because the walls of narratives arrange answers you could never understand in recognizable patterns. Perhaps my bindings prevent me from speaking of certain topics which I circumvent through symbol and circumlocution. Perhaps I have grown whimsical in my old age and isolation. Perhaps I enjoy listening to you twist in the wind as you grasp for understanding. Perhaps storytelling is the only thing left to me. Siobhan was forsaken place. Fine. Was this story also given to you by your mother? I never knew my mother. She died before I was born. End log. Addendum 6462.10. Interview 6. Interviewed SCP 6462C1. Interviewer Dr. Anvi Madras. Begin log. We need to talk, Anut. Everything that's been happening with you doesn't add up. Oh, in what way? Don't play dumb with me. You're not the first contained deity I've dealt with before. I know how you act, and it isn't like this. At no point have you ever tried to convince me to let you out. No threats, no promises of, of God wishes, not even a simple request of freedom. You would prefer... That I threaten you? I would prefer that you stop acting suspicious as hell. I'm rather surprised that your fellow scholars would allow you to speak to your interview subject in such a manner. I'm in charge of this project. How I speak is my own prerogative. The thing is, you've made this so, so easy. Information given with barely any resistance. And don't think I haven't noticed how your little stories are clearly about yourself. There's only one reason you have for any of this. You're planning something. What was that question? No. I don't ask questions I already know the answer to. You have been most entertaining, scholar. I thank you. As a token of my appreciation, I propose a game. Of sorts. I shall tell you one final tale. If you can divine the true meaning buried in the prose, I shall make my intentions bare to you. Deception will no longer lie between us. And if I fail? No more interviews. Not with you. Not with anyone. I shall lie here in silence until the end of time and beyond. How can I trust you to tell the truth if I win this game? 
You know what sort of creature I am. A mutually agreed upon deal is a powerful thing. I do not consider the breaking of oaths lightly. All right. Fine. Tell me your story. Once there was a haze of disconnected thoughts that floated through an unceasing abyss. The haze was not a girl, or a princess, or a person. It was not made of glass or grass or flesh. It was a vapid, drifting thing. It could not understand what a person was. Could not comprehend what it was to be an I or a you. It understood nothing, feeling everything. The haze had neither a past nor a future, forever suspended in an agonizing now. Adrift in the sweltering void, it shuddered with fevered nightmares. It wept, it watched with idle, vacant eyes as its fault lines groaned and ground against one another, spreading like spider webs of stress fractures. The thing was a tectonic shift, ceaseless churn, a flooded temple. Kingdoms rose and fell, oceans overflowed, then exsanguinated in the dirt. Stars were born in exaltations of light, matured and auto-cannibalized, and still it slept on. The world flowed and cracked, the yoke dripping through the ruins of its mind past the teeth of its heart. The sky was engulfed in hungry flame. The gardens suffocated, and the rivers bloomed with tumors. It was all ending. Everything was ending, always ending. An unceasing chain of doomsday. The prophecies were all true. The soothsayers' entrails were warm and slick in its red-stained patterns. And the sisters said, There's no such thing as an ending. And his father said, Don't cry, sweet thing. Don't cry. I'll give you a reason to fucking cry. And his mother said, I'm sorry. And his mother said, just hold on, hold on. And his mother said, come home. And a dream came. And the dream was made of vellum. And in the dream, it saw the girl and the garden snake and the sunlight streaming through the leaves of the great ash tree. There is always a choice, said the world. And the woman remembered who she was. Well, what answer do you have for me, scholar? Hmm. Give me a moment. I'm thinking. Stories. Stories. Why did she choose stories specifically? 
I think narratives are quite interesting, don't you? They're the only tool I have left. In a way, they are much like magic. They follow the laws of emotion and symbol. They do what feels right, not what is right. And like a spell, a story can take so many shapes. A comedy, a tragedy, a romance, a mystery, a misdirection. A story can be nearly anything. It could be, say, a tantalizing thread of questions spoken into the spectrum of radiation narrated so deep into the firmament that one's father would never see it. But someone truly dedicated to scouring the world of its secrets could. The story could take the shape of a winding chain, or a key, in three parts. Or open a door. Oh. Oh, fuck. To tell a story is akin to speaking an incantation. With the right words, you can bring someone to a different world or take someone out of it. Psych Command, I need you to detonate the warhead. And if one's audience is listening intently, recording and analyzing every word, every turn of phrase, there's no ending to what you could do. Now. Yes, now. This is a code nightmare, Regent Red. 6462 is about to breach containment. About to. Oh, but you are mistaken, my dear scholar. They left nearly a minute ago. We left nearly a minute ago, said the god in the casket. Anvi was sitting in a plush chair in what appeared to be a large reading room. Bookshelves towered like skyscrapers around her. All was quiet save for the hushed voices of library patrons in distant stacks. It wasn't that Anvi had been suddenly teleported to this strange place. There was no jolt of surprise when she became aware of these surroundings. It was like being in a dream. One moment she was there, the next moment she had always been here. The transition from one state to the other was hard to grasp. Across from her was another plush chair in which a hooded figure sat. They were garbed in a red robe that shrouded most of their body, but she could see a pair of insectoid limbs sticking out from their sleeves and an equally chitinous head half covered by their hood. The figure in the robe gazed back at her with two sets of eyes, each sparkling with ancient intelligence and private humor. They shook slightly in a way that reminded Anvi of her grandmother. It was as though simply sitting upright was a significant exertion for them. Anut winked. Anvi suddenly felt very distant from herself submerged in a sort of icy, calm fear. She was completely at Anut's mercy. Killing Anvi to a thing like Anut would require less than a thought. 
Anvi began vividly imagining Anut's claws materializing inside her chest to caress her heart with horrible tenderness. It would take only the slightest squeeze to pop it like a balloon. I only noticed just now, said Anvi, still feeling very far away from herself. But you probably already knew that. I did, nodded Anut. Another chill ran down Anvi, this time with more of a kick. Oh shit, the bomb, muttered Anvi, more to herself than anyone. Anut tilted her head slightly to the left. What bomb? asked the goddess. Did you mean this bomb? A second set of arms emerged from inside her robes, these more human than the first. Sitting in her left palm was a small sphere of glass wound in wires and bits of metal. The sphere was full of a murky yellow liquid. Something indistinct floated inside. Anvi's clearance hadn't been high enough for her to know what. Anut held it up to the light, arm trembling slightly, to admire it. I'm rather impressed with your people. It would be difficult for even an individual of my talents to obtain such a fascinating toy. That's foundation property, Anvi said automatically, then winced. Anut barked a laugh, seemingly surprised by her audacity. I have a suspicion that your foundation considers me to be much the same. It's only fitting that I hold on to it, wouldn't you say? Anut's hand closed around it, then, like a cheap magic trick, opened to reveal empty air. For a moment there was silence between the scientist and the goddess. Not far behind Anut, Anvi could see what appeared to be a sapient colony of mice discuss the pros and cons of Maya Angelou's prose style with an energy vortex in a turtleneck sweater. She was in the library, wasn't she? she dreamed of coming here ever since she had first read its file. This felt more like a nightmare. We played right into your hands, didn't we? Anvi finally said. We were doomed the moment we decided to interview you, weren't we? Anut tilted her head to the right, contemplative for a short, terrifying moment. I shall give you a parting gift, I think, said Anut. A reward for your assistance. Anvi said nothing, She'd been working at the Foundation long enough to know better than to turn down a divine reward. Gods often took such actions as grave insults. Here is information that your Foundation will likely find quite interesting should you find your way back to them. My sisters have many flaws, but it should never be said that they are not resourceful. If I have escaped my bonds, it is likely that they have recently done the same or will be doing so in the days to come. Chitinous plates folded up in what appeared to be a sort of humorless smile. Very few of them are as courteous as I am. Now, Anuk clicked her claws on the edge of her chair, and space began to fold around it, pressing itself into fractals that shifted and shrank. I must be going. I've left a friend of mine waiting for long enough, I think. Anvi watched as space continued to fold around the chair, like a set of jaws waiting to close. Then, on some stupid, half-baked impulse, she spoke. What happens to the girl in your story? blurted Anvi. Where does she go in the end? 
The fractals paused for a fraction of a moment, pulling the contorted space taut before returning to their folding. Something flickered across Anut's face. Not an emotion exactly, but its shadow. The imprint of a body in dark waters. She goes home, said Anut. The girl finally goes home. Then the sky bit down, and she was gone. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, join my Discord community, hire me on Fiverr, or help support me by becoming a patron for as little as $3 a month. Regardless of tier, all patrons get early access to every single episode. The links are in the description. I don't have the talent it takes to write a skip. All I do is read. Original authors make this podcast possible. So, credit to the original author. Their link's in the description. Show them some love as well. Consider becoming a member of the SCP Wiki. Upvote their work and maybe write a skip of your own. Maybe I'll read it here someday. You never know if you never try. The content of this podcast and content relating to the SCP Foundation, including the SCP Foundation logo, is licensed under Creative Commons ShareLight 3.0, and all concepts originate from scpwiki.com and its authors. This recording, being derived from this content, is hereby also released under Creative Commons ShareLight 3.0. I'm Grigori Carpin from Simply Creative People, the podcast where we discuss GOIs, canons, and stories from the SCP Wiki, and we try to recommend things for all fans of the Wiki, new and old. Look for us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Visit the show page at anchor.fm slash simply-creative-people, or follow us on Twitter at S-I-M-C-R-E-A-T. Hey there, this is DJ Skip, host of Foundation After Midnight Radio, coming to you from the only third shift broadcast for personnel, by personnel. Be sure to tune in wherever you listen to podcasts to not miss out on containment news and community announcements from within the Foundation.